From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the Datebook Podcast. I'm pop culture critic Peter Hartlob, here with art critic Charles Desmarais, who interviewed Comel Shaw, an important art collector in the Bay Area, who's been building her collection quickly, Charles? Very quickly. Um, as, as we'll hear a little bit later, she started in 2008, and by this year, she and her husband were named two of the top 200 collectors internationally, art collectors internationally by Art News, and they do this big survey each year, so... They're one of the top 200. Amazing to me. Yeah, and, and she has a new art series. It seems like she really wants to share this with people, share her collection and her knowledge. She does. She's, um, she's a graduate of Stanford. She's on the Stanford Arts um, Advisory Council. She and Gwara Garv, her, her husband, are um, sponsoring an artist conversation series that starts this Monday, March 4th, with the artist Dana Schutz, and we'll hear more about Dana later. And then in May, they'll bring in Lorna Simpson, in October, Linda Benglis, the great Linda Benglis. So it's it's quite a series coming up. I think it's a lovely episode. You and Comal talk about the art series in her collection, but also her reasons for collecting and the joy it brings her really comes through, I think, in the conversation. She's extraordinary, and we'll hear that. Datebook Podcast, thanks for listening. So, come on, we talked a little bit before, um, when we introduced you, but your background is as an engineer and as a manager of tech companies. Mm-hmm. We don't think of those as as um, leading to the kind of support and, and excitement you have about art, about visual art. So what, 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 brought, what brought you to art? Well, that's a long story. Okay. Um, but I do remember that I came to the U.S. to Stanford about 27 years ago to study computer science. Mm-hmm. Um, and calling up my parents in six months and telling them that this was home. Wow. And um, that I wasn't coming back. And my parents were not super surprised, but they kind of took it um, calmly. Um, and it has been home. I've lived within about 10 miles of radius of, San- of Stanford <laughs> ever since. Um, and I think, you know, being in computer science and then sort of wanting to work in the tech world, yes. um, you know, made it just natural for me to be in Silicon Valley um, for as long as I've been. Um, in about 2008, I was working for Yahoo, and our son was diagnosed with um, certain challenges that he would never be able to ski or catch a ball or ride a bicycle, mm-hmm. and that he needed um, therapy. He needed occupational therapy. And, you know, much as I had been programmed to be an equal to men, and I used to manage a very large organization at Yahoo at that time, mm-hmm. um, I tried to go part-time, but um, given the sort of the type A personality, it was hard for me to step back <laughs> and to also be a mother. Right. And that's when I realized that there is sort of that gender disparity um, in that I felt that I needed to step down from work and focus on my son. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started doing that, and we attended many, many um, therapy sessions. But one of the things that started happening was the Asian Art Museum um, invited me to become a trustee more as a community leader than sort of an arts collector. Mm -hmm. Um, But that actually spurred sort of my 
larger interest, which, I mean, I used to enjoy looking at art, but it's spurred sort of that larger interest in actually taking a more active role. Um, first in sort of, you know, talking about Indian heritage and Indian art, right. but then sort of as I started getting more involved, I realized that culturally, I connected more with artists of my age, um, mostly in North America. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, thanks to some sort of exposure by the Tate um, and the senior curator there, Mark Godfrey, I started getting much more involved in the history and sort of the background behind um, the art and the artists. Um, and at some point, I don't know when, but sort of that bug, the collection bug mm-hmm. sort of hit me and I decided to start collecting. Um, firstly, with sort of women my generation and my age, um, and then it's sort of gone backwards and forwards. This is terrific. I thought I, I thought I knew you, but obviously we've not had this conversation, <laughs> and it's it's so great to not learn a lot more about you. Well, and so having sort of spent now about eleven years, sometimes working, sometimes not, but definitely mm-hmm. sort of in the art world, um, I've been sort of wondering about what is a good way to bridge. Um, art and technology, especially in Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of looking up the recent market caps of just three companies, Facebook, Apple, and Google, and it's over two trillion. And, you know, these companies are more and more into sort of the consumer space, more into sort of our social lives. Um, And I do think that there really needs to be a dialogue between what we're doing in tech and art. And art is sort of a space that heralds the changes and what's happening in the society today. And and that was the reason to think about this conversation series. Well, uh, it's terrific. And and my understanding is that Stanford made that decision itself um, sort of around the same time, right? Stanford, as, as I'm told, and you're probably much, you, you're the one to talk about this, but that they realized that they were training these fabulously um, knowledgeable engineers and business leaders and such, but that there was something missing perhaps from the from their education. Is that true? Absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm on the art council at Stanford, mm-hmm. um, even though I have lectured in the engineering department a few times. But at the art council, it's, it's it was sort of eye-opening for me in how we view the world and how the world views Stanford arts. Yes. In that, if I just look at branding, you know, the tech branding is very high, top three in the world, right? And it's the sort of the hotbed for innovation, for entrepreneurship. Lots of tech companies have come about mm-hmm. um, via Stanford. But in the arts, Stanford is not really known as that place of serious art, serious discussions in art, um, in having that sort of gravitas. Even though we've had some great artists who have taught at Stanford and, and come out of Stanford's um, and, programs, right? And I think, to be honest, you know, when I sort of joined the Art Council, um, thanks to Harry Elam, uh, who's the head of arts at Stanford, um, one of the things I felt was that we were lacking that vibrancy of having artists be on campus all the time, even now, mm-hmm. and having people actually know about it. So, for example, we had Julie Moretto come a year and a half ago, but no one heard about it. And, and so we is, need to have these one, and, public and conversations. And who's Julie Moretto? <laughs> <laughs> She's one of the, certainly she one of the She is one of the preeminent black artists today. Absolutely. And one of the preeminent artists, in fact, of any, of any ethnic background. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, we need to highlight this and we need to bring people into this conversation. So now Art News Magazine says that you, one of the top 200 collectors, you and, and Gaurav, are um, 
among the top 200 collectors in the whole world. So that's a big move from 2008 when you were just kind of fiddling with this to the point that you've come. So what's the first work you collected and, and what drove you to, um, to buy a work of art? So the first work I collected was an artist known Rina ba- by an artist known as Rina Banerjee, mm-hmm. who is Indian, Indian mm-hmm. um, but moved to New Jersey when she was seven, and so considers herself a New Yorker. Um, and her paintings are very beautiful. Um, they are um, very they they are sort of very sad and evocative of sort of segregation and identity issues. Mm-hmm. And you know her titles are like long poems. Um, and I was at a Christie's auction thanks to a friend of mine who wanted to mentor me in South Asian art. Um, and I noticed that no one was raising the paddle. And because this was, you know, 2010 and I'd never bought a work of art at an auction before, I sort of had deliberately decided not to register. Uh-huh. And then I, you know, when I saw that no one was sort of raising their paddles for this work, I got tempted and I asked my friend to buy the work for me. <laughs> so the work is still officially in Dipti Mathur's name, <laughs> even though I have the work and, you know, we've sort of, we've adjusted the logistics at Christie's. Mm-hmm. But that was my first work of art that I bought. Um, and it's now coming to the San Jose Museum of Art um, as a tour of her show. So you loved the work, and perhaps there was that relationship to your own background mm-hmm. um, as an immigrant from, from India. And, and you're interest has maintained in that idea of, of um, collecting work by women, collecting work by people of color. Is that, I mean, that's true, isn't it? That's pretty much so the focus of your collection. So our work only includes, yes, uh, women artists and artists of color. And, you know, that is not to say that work by other artists and by white men mm-hmm. um, <laughs> are not great. Yes. But, you know, as a collector, I have limited budget, uh, much as I li- I'd like for that not to be true. Um, and I need to f- focus my resources to where I can make an impact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I started collecting this core group of women, as I've said, they're sort of my generation, Charlene Von Heil, Laura Owens, Jacqueline Humphreys, Amy Silman. Um, and to be honest, when I sort of started looking at their work, I fell in love with the work first and then learned that they were women. Uh-huh. And so... You know, so is that, is that a that rule that you have to fall in love with the work regardless of... And, absolutely. And then, yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that's critical. But as I've sort of started learning more about, you know, the gender disparity in the art world, yes. um, it has also become a focus to support these women. And, you know, just the, uh, the pricing differences are huge even between Charlene Von Heil and her husband, Christopher Wool. Yes. Um, and I you know, subjectively, of course, think that Charlene is a much better painter. (laughs) However, you know, there's a 50x difference Mm -hmm. in how the, you know, the pricing works for their art. 50 times. Mm -hmm. And um, not insignificant. (laughs) And, you know, Charlene is having a huge moment. Mm -hmm. She is having a survey show at the Hirshhorn. Um, She had a large survey show at Hamburg. um, And the show actually had to be extended by three months um, until April. So I find I feel that some of these artists are finally getting their recognition that they're they've been due, um, and it's great to support them. So what's the difference between a collector, as we might understand the the term, um, among other you and other collectors and people in museums and such, and the person who buys the occasional object to hang on their wall? So, uh, um, I'll talk about me. I cannot talk about sort of the sure. term collector yes, in do. general, but I think. Um, 
you know, for me, it is a very mission-driven collection. Um, the art itself is very important mm -hmm. um, and is sort of the central point of the collection, right? Um, it gives me great joy. It makes me think. It makes people who come to the house think and really experience the art, even though they don't know the story behind the art. And then once people find out the story, it makes a much larger impact. But I think it's also about sort of correcting that scale of uh, imbalance, if you will, correcting that imbalance mm -hmm. and um, supporting these artists so that they can also enjoy um, so their place in the sun. Yes. Um, I, that's true for artists of color as well. Um, even though black artists are now in fashion, you know, one of the things I learned at the Moad conversation um, on Saturday. The Museum of the African Diaspora, yes. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Um, was that there are five artists that contribute to more than 90% of what happens at the auction with, within the black mar artist market. Wow. And so, you know, there is the need to spread that love mm -hmm. to a larger number of artists, to women um, as well. And honestly, I think that there are some fabulous women artists today and there have been great women artists and you know it's important to correct that difference and um, really give them the dues. You mentioned your your guests um, and I'm sure you entertain a lot. I, you've, you're a wonderful entertainer. I've been the beneficiary of that and I appreciated it. Um, you must have people ask questions about some of the things that you collect particularly if they're not art people. Have you, so tell me, are any great stories of somebody that misunderstood something or was outraged or, or surprised by well, something? Well, I'll actually tell you a funny story about my husband, first of all. Okay, please. So I bought a work by Amy Silman, mm -hmm. and it was on sort of the earlier side of my collecting journey. And it was at a Phillips auction, mm -hmm. and I was very proud that I managed to get it at a good price. Um, and so I tell Gaurav that I have brought this, bought this work of art, and he says, well, what did you buy? And so this is when I realized I'd never looked at the title. And <laughs> so I start looking at the title through the Phillips catalog and discovered that it was a little threesome. <laughs> so I told him, honey, I bought you a little threesome. <laughs> um, and you know, it's interesting that we have a Mark Bradford, um, and we have a work of his called The Next Hotline, which is based on the Tulsa riots mm. uh, from the 1920s. And they were, um, you know, about 10,000 people were lynched. Um, yet the whole incident was wiped out of the history books until 2001. Wow. And kudos to Mark for shining a light on that whole event. And um, there are people who come and tell, tell us, oh, this work looks so beautiful. It's so intricate. Mm. And when they hear the story behind it, it's transformative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, suddenly they start looking at the work in new light. There's blood on the street. There are gashes. It is, it's not a beautiful work in that sense when you think about the story it tells. But much of the work that you collect, in fact, is, um, if not abstract, certainly leans heavily on the, on the abstract side of, mm -hmm. um, of the divide between representation and abstraction. You know, and that is also that is to do with the fact that I consider myself a global citizen mm -hmm. um, in that I'm Indian, but I also think of the Bay Area as home. Yes. Uh, I collect mostly um, American artists. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that sort of na we are now not just about a particular country or a particular culture. It's about sort of we are beyond these walls. And so 
to me, abstraction blurs the boundaries. It talks about sort of more core issues that a- apply to all of us. Mm-hmm. And and so and I I think on the other side, I'm sort of learning that I just I enjoy learning people's interpretations of an abstract painting, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So Mark Bradford, for some people, was beautiful. And, you know, the blue sky, it evoked the blue sky for them, versus it was actually about blood on the streets. Yes. And so it's, it's kind of just wonderful to let people's imaginations fly as well. So um, you mentioned this one person that you said was beginning, you know, be, had decided to mentor you, who had offered to mentor you. You've had, um, you have a lot of great relationships in the art world. Where, how, how have you learned and where, where, do you, where do you go to learn? Where should one go? So I think my main mentor is Gary Gerrels mm-hmm. at SFMOMA. He's the um, chief curator of, of uh, painting and sculpture. Painting and sculpture. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he has tutored me. He has taught me um, about sort of the arc of art history, about what's important, what to look for. Um, I've walked with him at various fairs um, for about seven-ish years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm constantly in dialogue with him. Yeah. And there are times where I'll get infatuated by a particular artist or a particular show, and he'll help me parse through sort of the significance or sort of what's novel about what I'm seeing or not. So he might wave you off sometimes? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> That's happened many times. I can get infatuated very quickly. Um, and so he'll sort of, you know, bring me back to reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second mentor um, who I absolutely trust is Mark Godfrey at the Tate. Oh. And, you know, uh, Mark is younger. He's in his um, late 30s. Um, he, has a, he has a very intellectual way of looking at paintings. So one of the things I would sort of, you know, just be happy about was sort of how the aesthetics of the painting looked and worked. And he actually started to take me through what I should be looking underneath just the aesthetics. Um, and, and I think sort of really understanding the artist's history and what I was looking at and why it was important and why it would Im- be important 20 years from now. So that old advice that people give to, um, that we, we're told when you're might want to be a collector, and we say, well, where do I start? And people say, just buy what you like. You don't just buy what you like, do you? I absolutely buy what I like, but I don't buy everything that I like, because <laughs> it is tempered by sort of the wisdom of uh, my mentors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've also looked at Pamela Joyner, who's a very dear friend and, um, a, and a fabulous collector. collector. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she was actually one of the first people to inspire me to start looking into it, into collecting. And... I've seen how she collects and sort of, you know, her critical eye yes. in what she looks at. And sort of there's a litmus test in how the works look um, and sort of and also the artist and what's new and unique about the artist. And I've, I've sort of learned to embrace that knowledge. Uh, Bob Rennie is another close friend and a very well-regarded collector. Um, he's based in Vancouver uh-huh. and he has a Rennie Art Museum. Um, but he is also he forced me to sort of think more about what issues were important. So, for example, their collection is based mostly on identity and segregation and displacement. And he sort of made me think about what was important to me in the long run as well mm-hmm. and not just get completely diluted. So you mentioned um, SF MoMA, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and you recently joined the board there. Mm-hmm. Um, you are... You are on the 
American Committee, I think it's called, for the Tate in, in London. So I have been um, on the Acquisitions Committee at SFMOMA mm-hmm. for about five years, mm-hmm. um, working with Gary. And, and then recently I agreed to become um, a trustee. Um, at Tate, I have been on the North America Acquisitions Committee, and now I am a trustee of the Tate Americas Foundation. That's um, what's interesting is that the Tate receives about 70 or 80 percent of its philanthropy from the U.S. Wow. And so the Tate Americas Foundation is the 501c3 mm-hmm. that manages both the collection and the disbursement. And then of we're here to talk also about your support for Stanford. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get right into that in a second. But I, but. What are the satisfactions uh, for you of um, of these involvements? And Lord knows it's not an inexpensive thing to support these institutions, and, you, and you've been very generous. How, why? What drives that for you? So, you know, I feel that it's an ecosystem that we're in. And Equal. E- ecosystem. Ecosystem, yes. And it's an ecosystem where you need to support each other, mm-hmm. right? The museums and the curators are supporting me, in how I collect and in what I collect and, you know, um, sort of shaping my my collection strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I'm supporting the museums in with funds and also advice because there are times where we see things earlier as collectors or helping them acquire works that are hard for them to acquire. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, with SFMOMA, sort of adding a, di- a different voice, right? Um, as you pointed out, our work is unique across all of the trustees and that it's only women, only artists of color. And that's sort of a new dimension to what the trustees have been collecting. And and so I feel that it's, you know, it's one of my roles to at least talk more about it and to sort of, to focus it. So, for example, at one of the um, uh, acquisition committee meetings, Gary talked about looking into acquiring a Laura Owens. Mm-hmm. And I have been a huge supporter of Laura Owens, including sponsoring the Water Show, um, at a time when no one really knew Laura Owens. And so it's, it makes me very happy to see that inclusion. Um, and I think the third part of the ecosystem is the artists. And, and sort of I'd put galleries in that same bucket. Because when they see that as a collector, you are supporting museums in, in, in very significant ways, not just by being on sort of committees, um, they actually want to offer you the best works of art. Because the they know you does, will loan yes. to museums, you will support the artist's career um, in sort of in many different ways. So it's close to the systems of patronage that, that go back to the Renaissance period, doesn't it? Isn't it? I think you would know better about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the idea of that relationship between you as the supporter and the, and the artist is what makes the it's possible Absolutely. for the artist to have a career and to for museums to to survive, mm-hmm. right? And you know, on a personal level, what's given me great joy is becoming friends mm. with many of these artists. And you know, whether it's Charlene or Laura or Amy Silman or Charles Gaines, mm-hmm. um, you know, just having these kinds of relationships and being able to just go to their studio and be a fly on the wall, um, and to see this sort of uninhibited creativity. Um, is actually very re-energizing and inspiring. And in the tech world, I've been in product management, where we are sort of at that cusp of creating new products in the tech world, right? It's always, you know, what does the customer want? Where is the market going? You know, who we are, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not um, 
it is not as free you know right. it it has its own sort of limits to own constraints on what we can create and it's always modulated by what the customer wants what are the market dynamics versus i think art is actually sort of very freeing in terms of where imagination can take you mm-hmm. and it to me it's just an amazing journey to watch what happens in studios it's fascinating i i've known collectors that have said i don't want to meet the artist because mm-hmm. i like the art and what if i hate the artist then i'll be stuck with this piece of work that by somebody that i really dislike you haven't had that experience huh? you know i think i don't know if it's it's about the depth of being a collector but to me knowing the artists and knowing their journey really adds a different brings out a different kind of passion to support them mm-hmm. because now you're sort of seeing it as a composite the artist and the work and you want to support both the artist and the work so now you're giving us all an opportunity to get to know some artists which i think is interesting because there's a new um a new program at Stanford University that um it's called the Kamal Shah and Gaurav Garg artist conversation series is that right correct that's a mouthful <laughs> it is a mouthful but those are the rules of Stanford <laughs> <laughs> and um And so tell me about that series and why did you decide to do this? Is this something that um that um Harry Elam the vice president for the arts asked you to do or did this come from you? So um November of 2017 um is when I attended my first art council meeting at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um and that was on the invitation of Harry Elam and as I was sort of going through the agenda to me I realized for me it was interesting to know that they were really not talking about artists and artist mm. residencies and sort of you know giving exposure to these artists um giving exposure to the students about these artists so what were they talking about then instead well there were there were a lot of agen- uh, other items on the agenda that mm-hmm. i can't talk about <laughs> but certainly they built two great museums yes. and also the mcmurtry building mm-hmm. for um art history and Training. art practice yes. and they've done they've come a long ways right and now sort of it's about programming um and i have felt that you know when it comes to sort of real art conversations i'm always in san francisco in the city of san francisco for that but we don't really see much going on at stanford and you know thinking of stanford as that sort of hub of silicon valley where it is sort of a proven place for education mm-hmm. um my thought was that this would be that best place to talk about art but its relationship to sort of the socio-political landscape more than just art as a process and really introduce these great artists to the students and to the alumni who mm-hmm. end up living around there yes of course and really get that conversation flowing and you put them you you've got these artists and you're putting them into conversation with with you're pairing them very mm-hmm. consciously aren't you so your first con- your first pair is an artist named Dana Schutz um and you put her with Hamza Walker who is um the director of Laxart um Los Angeles right. space and a curator who's rather political in the works that he's um absolutely fronted for over time so this this will be a pretty hot conversation won't it because so, because mm-hmm. I I think I have to mention that Dana Schutz is the artist who was shown at the Whitney um in 2017 and was very controversial because she made a painting of um Emmett Till in his casket that 
raised lots and lots of questions. I think she's, by the way, a marvelous artist and a marvelous person. But she, but, but this is a controversial artist now, like it or not, isn't mm-hmm. it? Absolutely. So you know, when I went to the Whitney Biennial, mm-hmm. and I think I'd heard a little bit about the controversy, but not really. Um, there was a painting which was "Fight in the Elevator," which was about three times the size of um, open casket. And yet no one was looking at it. And it was an absolutely fantastic painting, right? And no one was looking at it, but people were fixated on open casket. And I totally understand that it's a very significant issue. Um, It's a very significant story um, to sort of the black heritage and to the segregation movement. And and I don't know if if it's clear, but open casket is a painting of Emmett Till, dead after his having been... And com- and disfigured, yes. his face very disfigured. And the painting itself is is very provocative. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does evoke that emotion of disgust and sorrow. Um, and so she absolutely did her job as an artist, yes. which is to move people. Um, however, you know, Dana has been painting since 2002. Her paintings have been around sort of, you know, discomfort, causing discomfort, whether it's sort of social angles or sort of personal angles. And and so in some ways, she wasn't painting anything extraordinarily different, right? Um, but I sort of wonder that I'm embraced as a collector of black artists, but a black paint, a, a white painter who wants to paint a predominantly black issue, you know, is not accepted. Mm-hmm. And I, so I want to talk about representation. I want to talk about appropriation. Um, and whose right is it to tell what story, especially in an increasingly global world? Yes. Right? And, and I thought that Stanford should be that place to have those provocative conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of wanted to be able to touch those stories in, in a very authentic way. And for people to be able to go there and into that story. And I realized that Hamza would be that the right person to lead that conversation. Is he going to give he her has, a hard time? You know, Hamza is, is able to talk about these issues in a, in a very sensitive way, mm-hmm. but he also does support Dana in what she did. Um, and I'm not saying that there's one right answer to this whole not. topic, but I think that it will be a very meaty conversation. You know, he and I were chatting about this a year ago, and... One of the things he said was, well, appropriation and sort of this whole representation issue has been happening since the Depression era, where artists were talking about sort of the Depression and representing it. And so he wants to bring that sort of the whole history of appropriation to the fore as well, that this is not just one event. And, you know, Bob Dylan wrote a ballad on Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. And no one's raised any issues about that. Mm -hmm. So I, I sort of want us to have a real conversation on this. Um, and so uh, we were so thrilled that Hamza was going was able to come to our um, conversation. Well, I'm looking forward to that. That's next Monday. But um, you've come, you've got you've set up three coming already, right? Three um, of these conversations for right. this year. So my thought was that having a conversation that happens once a year sort of doesn't really register on people's radar. Mm-hmm. But I want the series to really become that go-to place where they know that every quarter. It's like a mental clinic, you know, that they will go, they'll hear something interesting, thought-provoking, and just come back and talk about it. And so we thought that having it at the frequency of one per every academic quarter 
um, would be important to really maintain that momentum. So it's it's a lot of work. Uh, it has been a lot of work, but um, I'm very optimistic that it'll be worth it. So you'll have the artist Lorna Simpson um, in conversation with Darren Walker, the president of the Ford Foundation, in May. Mm-hmm. And then next fall, the famous um, Linda Bankless, who is probably 80 years old now? 77. 77. I just looked it up. Okay. So a, a, a mature artist and a, a, with a great mature career. Um, speaking with the critic Kimberly Drew. Who's in, 29. Who's 29 in October. So that'll be a nice contrast too. So, you know, with Lorna, her work has been so much about identity and gender. Mm-hmm. And most recently she has this series called Ice, which is to put people in prison. And Darren Walker and Agnes Gund have also teamed up on the Art for Justice Fund, which is around sort of incarceration um, for sort of black youth. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that it'd be great to talk about some of these issues um, face-to-face. They both, of course, know each other very well. Um, but having them talk about sort of what does this mean and why is this, why is this incarceration a predominantly black issue today mm. um, would be important. Now... Lorna also talks about sort of a woman's identity and, you know, sort of the whole, how she views herself, and especially how a black woman views herself. Um, So we want to talk about that as well. And Darren certainly would be able to address all of those topics. But he'd also be able to tie into what's happening at the Ford Foundation and what are the issues that they're facing. Well, I'm very much looking forward to, to all three of these conversations. And Next Monday, March 4th, um, at the Semex Auditorium in Stanford, at Stanford, they'll be, and these are free, right? For these are free and open to everyone. So We just request just registration, yes, yeah, so that so, we know. So they go to the um, Stanford website. We'll, we'll put the, um, we'll let people know where to, to um, make that registration, but I look forward so to that. So one last event. comment, oh, I'm please sorry. please do. Sorry. Um, is that, you know, with Linda, um, what I find very interesting is that. Linda Benglis. Linda yes. Benglis. Mm-hmm that the most famous work um, that she's known for, or what she's most notorious for, (laughs) is an image in art forum um, of her posing nude with Mm -hmm. a dildo, right? Right. And and she, it was a sort of a tongue-in-cheek moment, you know, women and feminists loved it. Um, Quite a gigantic dildo, (laughs) in fact. (laughs) But she's making fun of the male ego, yes. Yes, of course she was. Um, But... um, she has be she has gone where no person has gone before in terms of her art. Mm-hmm. She has created these massive sculptures and these beautiful sculptures um, with different materials: latex, bronze, steel, uh, glass. And lest anybody misunderstand, generally not directly sexual. Uh, not at all. Um, exactly. References. Not at all. Mm-hmm. But you know, she's uh, she is one of those artists who. I think is not just equal to men, but better than men. <laughs> and and so, you know, having her come and talk about feminism, and she, by the way, denies that she's a feminist, mm. even though she believes that we're all equal. Um, she doesn't, she cringes at the word feminism. Okay. So we'd love to talk about that. Sure. Um, and Kimberly Drew is this 29-year-old sort of, sort of curator, sort of social activist, um, sort of Instagram darling. She mm. has 250,000 followers on Instagram. <laughs> so we thought that this combination would be um, exciting and different. There's no question that it And will they're be. both excited about talking to each other for the first time. 
Well, I've been excited to talk to you. I didn't have much to, to, that I really needed to say because you're such, you're so deeply involved in what you do and so deeply knowledgeable about what you do and committed, and it's obvious. And I've greatly enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure that our listeners will too. Thank you so much. listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Charles Desmarais and Komel Shaw. Our producer today is me, Peter Hartlob. Supervising producers are King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke, and our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is Mozart Symphony 40 in G minor by Blue Dot Sessions. Read our columns and subscribe to the Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. San Francisco Chronicle podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S.